Chapter Nineteen, Part One of the Wrecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Nineteen, Part One. Travels with a Shyster. The absorbing and disastrous adventure of the Flying Scud was now quite ended. We had dashed into these deep waters, and we had escaped again to starve. We had been ruined, and were saved, had quarrelled, and made up. There remained nothing but to sing Te Diem, draw a line, and begin on a fresh page of my unwritten diary. I do not pretend that I recovered all I had lost with Mamie. It would have been more than I had merited, and I had certainly been more uncommunicative than became either the partner or the friend. But she accepted the position handsomely, and during the week that I now passed with them, both she and Jim had the grace to spare me questions. It was to Calistoga that we went. There was some rumour of a Napa land-boom at the moment. The possibility of stir attracted Jim, and he informed me he would find a certain joy in looking on, much as Napoleon on St. Helena took pleasure to read military works. The field of his ambition was quite closed. He was done with action, and looked forward to a ranch in a mountain dingle, a patch of corn a pair of kine, a leisurely and contemplative age in the green shade of forests. "'Just let me get down on my back in a hayfield,' said he, "'and you'll find there's no more snap to me than that much putty.' And for two days the perfervid being actually rested. The third he was observed in consultation with the local editor, and owned he was in two minds about purchasing the press and paper. "'It's a kind of a hold for an idle man,' he said pleadingly and if the section was to open up the way it ought to, there might be dollars in the thing. On the fourth day he was gone till dinner-time alone. On the fifth we made a long picnic drive to the fresh field of enterprise, and the sixth was passed entirely in the preparation of prospectuses. The pioneer of McBride City was already upright and self-reliant as of yore. The fire rekindled in his eye, the ring restored to his voice, a charger sniffing battle and saying, Ha-ha! among the spears. On the seventh morning we signed a deed of partnership, for Jim would not accept a dollar of my money otherwise, and having once more engaged myself, or that mortal part of me, my purse, among the wheels of his machinery, I returned alone to San Francisco and took quarters in the Palace Hotel. The same night I had Nares to dinner. His sunburnt face, his queer and personal strain of talk, recalled days that were scarce over and that seemed already distant. Through the music of the band outside, and the chink and clatter of the dining-room, it seemed to me as if I heard the foaming of the surf and the voices of the sea-birds about Midway Island. The bruises on our hands were not yet healed. And there we sat, waited on by elaborate darkies, eating pompano and drinking iced champagne. "'Think of our dinners on the Nora, Captain, and then oblige me by looking round the room for contrast.' He took the scene in slowly. Yes. It is like a dream, he said. Like as if the darkies were really about as big as dimes, and a great big scuttle might open up there, and Johnson stick in a great big head and shoulders and cry, Eight bells, and the whole thing vanish. Well, it's the other thing that has done that, I replied. It's all bygone now, all dead and buried. Amen, say I. I don't know that, Mr. Dodd, and to tell you the fact, I don't believe it, said Nares. There's more flying scud in the oven, and the baker's name, I take it, is Bel Air's. 
He tackled me the day we came in. Sort of a razzy, poor old humanity. Jury clothes. Full new suit of pimples. I knew him at once from your description. I let him pump me till I saw his game. He knows a good deal that we don't know, a good deal that we do, and suspects the balance. There's trouble brewing for somebody." I was surprised I had not thought of this before. Bellairs had been behind the scenes. He had known Dixon. He knew the flight of the crew. It was hardly possible but what he should suspect. It was certain, if he suspected, that he would seek to trade on the suspicion. And sure enough, I was not yet dressed the next morning, ere the lawyer was knocking at my door. I let him in, for I was curious, and he, after some ambiguous prolegomena, roundly proposed I should go shares with him. "'Shares in what?' I inquired. "'If you will allow me to clothe my idea in a somewhat vulgar form,' said he, "'I might ask you, did you go to Midway for your health?' "'I don't know that I did,' I replied. "'Similarly, Mr. Dodd, you may be sure I would never have taken the present step without influential grounds,' pursued the lawyer. "'Intrusion is foreign to my character. But you and I, sir, are engaged on the same ends. If we can continue to work the thing in company, I place at your disposal my knowledge of the law and a considerable practice in delicate negotiations similar to this. Should you refuse to consent, you might find in me a formidable and—' he hesitated—and, to my own regret, perhaps a dangerous competitor." "'Did you get this by heart?' I asked genially. "'I advise you to,' he said with a sudden sparkle of temper and menace, instantly gone, instantly succeeded by fresh cringing. "'I assure you, sir, I arrive in the character of a friend, and I believe you underestimate my information. If I may instance an example, I am acquainted to the last dime with what you made, or rather lost, and I know you have since cashed a considerable draft on London.' "'What do you infer?' I asked. I know where that draft came from," he cried, wincing back like one who has greatly dared, and instantly regrets the venture. "'So?' said I. "'You forget I was Mr. Dixon's confidential agent,' he explained. "'You had his address, Mr. Dodd. We were the only two that he communicated with in San Francisco. You see, my deductions are quite obvious. You see how open and frank I deal with you, as I should wish to do with any gentleman with whom I was conjoined in business. You see how much I know and it can scarcely escape your strong common sense, how much better it would be if I knew all. You cannot hope to get rid of me at this time of day. I have my place in the affair. I cannot be shaken off. I am, if you will excuse a rather technical pleasantry, an encumbrance on the estate. The actual harm I can do I leave you to valuate for yourself. But without going so far, Mr. Dodd, and without in any way inconveniencing myself, I could make things very uncomfortable. For instance, Mr. Pinkerton's liquidation. You and I know, sir, and you better than I, on what a large fund you draw. Is Mr. Pinkerton in the thing at all? It was you only who knew the address, and you were concealing it. Suppose I should communicate with Mr. Pinkerton. Look here, I interrupted. Communicate with him, if you will permit me to clothe my idea in vulgar shape, till you are blue in the face. There is only one person with whom I refuse to allow you to communicate further, and that is myself. Good morning." He could not conceal his rage, disappointment, and surprise, and in the passage, I have no doubt, was shaken by St. Vitus. I was disgusted by this interview. It struck me hard to be suspected on all hands, 
and to hear again from this trafficker what I had heard already from Jim's wife. And yet my strongest impression was different and might rather be described as an impersonal fear. There was something against nature in the man's craven impudence. It was as though a lamb had butted me. Such daring at the hands of such a dastard implied unchangeable resolve, a great pressure of necessity, and powerful means. I thought of the unknown Carthew, and it sickened me to see this ferret on his trail. Upon inquiry, I found the lawyer was but just disbarred for some malpractice, and the discovery added excessively to my disquiet. Here was a rascal, without money or the means of making it, thrust out of the doors of his own trade, publicly shamed, and doubtless in a deuce of a bad temper with the universe. Here, on the other hand, was a man with a secret, rich, terrified, practically in hiding, who had been willing to pay ten thousand pounds for the bones of the flying scud. I slipped insensibly into a mental alliance with the victim. The business weighed on me. All day long I was wondering how much the lawyer knew, how much he guessed, and when he would open his attack. Some of these problems are unsolved to this day. Others were soon made clear. Where he got Carthew's name is still a mystery. Perhaps some sailor on the Tempest. Perhaps my own sea-lawyer served him for a tool. But I was actually at his elbow when he learned the address. One evening, when I had an engagement and was killing time until the hour, I chanced to walk in the court of the hotel while the band played. The place was bright as day with the electric light, and I recognized at some distance among the loiterers the person of Bellairs, in talk with a gentleman whose face appeared familiar. It was certainly someone I had seen, and seen recently, but who or where I knew not. A porter standing hard by gave me the necessary hint. The stranger was an English navy man, invalided home from Honolulu, where he had left his ship. Indeed, it was only from the change of clothes and the effects of sickness that I had not immediately recognized my friend and correspondent, Lieutenant Seabright. The conjunction of these planets seeming ominous, I drew near, but it seemed Bellairs had done his business. He vanished in the crowd, and I found my officer alone. "'Do you know whom you have been talking to, Mr. Seabright?' I began. "'No,' said he. "'I don't know him from Adam. Anything wrong?' "'He is a disreputable lawyer, recently disbarred,' said I. "'I wish I had seen you in time. I trust you told him nothing about Carthew?' He flushed to his ears. "'I'm awfully sorry,' he said. "'He seemed civil, and I wanted to get rid of him. It was only the address he asked.' "'And you gave it?' I cried. "'I'm really awfully sorry,' said Seabright. "'I'm afraid I did.' "'God forgive you,' was my only comment, and I turned my back upon the blunderer. The fat was in the fire now. Bellairs had the address, and I was the more deceived, or Carthew would have news of him. So strong was this impression, and so painful, that the next morning I had the curiosity to pay the lawyer's den a visit. An old woman was scrubbing the stair, and the board was down. "'Lawyer Bellairs?' said the old woman. "'Gone east this morning. There's Lawyer Dean the next block up.' I did not trouble Lawyer Dean, but walked slowly back to my hotel, ruminating as I went. The image of the old woman washing that desecrated stair had struck my fancy. It seemed that all the water supply of the city and all the soap in the state would scarce suffice to cleanse it. It had been so long a clearing-house of dingy secrets and a factory of sordid fraud and now the corner was untenanted. Some judge, like a careful housewife, 
had knocked down the web, and the bloated spider was scuttling elsewhere after new victims. I had of late, as I have said, insensibly taken sides with Carthew. Now when his enemy was at his heels my interest grew more warm, and I began to wonder if I could not help. The drama of the flying scud was entering on a new phase. It had been singular from the first. It promised an extraordinary conclusion. And I, who had paid so much to learn the beginning, might pay a little more and see the end. I lingered in San Francisco indemnifying myself after the hardships of the cruise, spending money, regretting it, continually promising departure for the morrow. Why not go, indeed, and keep a watch upon Bellairs? If I missed him there was no harm done. I was the nearer Paris. If I found and kept his trail it was hard if I could not put some stick in his machinery. And at the worst I could promise myself interesting scenes and revelations. In such a mixed humour I made up what it pleases me to call my mind, and once more involved myself in the story of Carthew and the Flying Scud. The same night I wrote a letter of farewell to Jim, and one of anxious warning to Dr. Urquhart, begging him to set Carthew on his guard. The morrow saw me in the ferry-boat, and ten days later I was walking the hurricane deck on the city of Denver. By that time my mind was pretty much made down again, its natural condition. I told myself that I was bound for Paris or Fontainebleau to resume the study of the arts, and I thought no more of Carthew or Bellairs, or only to smile at my own fondness. The one I could not serve, even if I wanted, the other I had no means of finding, even if I could have at all influenced him after he was found. And for all that I was close on the heels of an absurd adventure. My neighbour at table that evening was a Frisco man whom I knew slightly. I found he had crossed the plains two days in front of me, and this was the first steamer that had left New York for Europe since his arrival. Two days before me meant a day before Bellairs, and dinner was scarce done before I was closeted with the purser. Bellairs, he repeated. Not in the saloon, I am sure. He may be in the second class. The lists are not made out, but—hullo! Harry D. Bellairs? That the name? He's there right enough. And the next morning I saw him on the forward deck, sitting in a chair, a book in his hand, a shabby puma-skin rug about his knees, the picture of respectable decay. Off and on I kept him in my eye. He read a good deal, he stood and looked upon the sea, he talked occasionally with his neighbours, and once when a child fell he picked it up and soothed it. I damned him in my heart. The book, which I was sure he did not read, the sea to which I was ready to take oath he was indifferent, the child, whom I was certain he would as leave have tossed overboard, all seemed to me elements in a theatrical performance, and I made no doubt he was already nosing after the secrets of his fellow-passengers. I took no pains to conceal myself, my scorn for the creature being as strong as my disgust. But he never looked my way, and it was night before I learned he had observed me. I was smoking by the engine-room door, for the air was a little sharp, when a voice rose close beside me in the darkness. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Dodd,' it said. "'That you, Bellairs?' I replied. "'A single word, sir. Your presence on the ship has no connection with our interview?' he asked. "'You have no idea, Mr. Dodd, of returning upon your determination?' "'None,' said I. And then, seeing he still lingered, I was polite enough to add, "'Good evening,' at which he sighed and went away. The next day he was there again with the chair and the puma-skin. 
read his book and looked at the sea with the same constancy, and though there was no child to be picked up I observed him to attend repeatedly on a sick woman. Nothing fosters suspicion like the act of watching. A man spied upon can hardly blow his nose but we accuse him of designs, and I took an early opportunity to go forward and see the woman for myself. She was poor, elderly, and painfully plain. I stood abashed at the sight, felt I owed Belair's amends for the injustice of my thoughts, and seeing him standing by the rail in his usual attitude of contemplation, walked up and addressed him by name. "'You seem very fond of the sea,' said I. "'I may really call it a passion, Mr. Dodd,' he replied, and the tall cataract haunted me like a passion, he quoted. "'I never weary of the sea, sir. This is my first ocean voyage. I find it a glorious experience.' And once more my disbarred lawyer dropped into poetry. Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll. Though I had learned the piece in my reading book at school, I came into the world a little too late on the one hand, and I dare say a little too early on the other, to think much of Byron, and the sonorous verse, prodigiously well delivered, struck me with surprise. "'You are fond of poetry, too?' I asked. "'I am a great reader,' he replied. At one time I had begun to amass quite a small but well-selected library, and when that was scattered I still managed to preserve a few volumes, chiefly of pieces designed for recitation, which have been my travelling companions. "'Is that one of them?' I asked, pointing to the volume in his hand. "'No, sir,' he replied, showing me a translation of The Sorrows of Werther. "'That is a novel I picked up some time ago. It has afforded me great pleasure, though immoral.' "'Oh, immoral!' cried I, indignant as usual at any complication of art and ethics. "'Surely you cannot deny that, sir, if you know the book,' he said. "'The passion is illicit, though certainly drawn with a good deal of pathos. It is not a work one could possibly put into the hands of a lady, which is to be regretted on all accounts, for I do not know how it may strike you. But it seems to me, as a depiction, if I make myself clear, to rise high above its compeers, even famous compeers, even in Scott, Dickens, Thackeray, or Hawthorne, the sentiment of love appears to me to be frequently done less justice to. "'You are expressing a very general opinion,' said I. "'Is that so indeed, sir?' he exclaimed with unmistakable excitement. "'Is the book well known? And who was Goethe? I am interested in that, because upon the title-page the usual initials are omitted, and it runs simply by Goethe. Was he an author of distinction? Has he written other works? Such was our first interview, the first of many, and in all he showed the same attractive qualities and defects. His taste for literature was native and unaffected. His sentimentality, although extreme and I thought ridiculous, was plainly genuine. I wondered at my own innocent wonder. I knew that Homer nodded, that Caesar had compiled a jest-book, that Turner lived by preference the life of Puggy Booth, that Shelley made paper-boats, and Wordsworth wore green spectacles. And with all this mass of evidence before me I had expected Bellairs to be entirely of one piece, subdued to what he worked in, a spy all through. As I abominated the man's trade, so I had expected to detest the man himself. And behold, I liked him, poor devil! He was essentially a man on wires, all sensibility and tremor, brimful of a cheap poetry, not without parts, quite without courage. His boldness was despair. 
the gulf behind him thrust him on. He was one of those who might commit a murder rather than confess the theft of a postage stamp. I was sure that his coming interview with Carthew rode his imagination like a nightmare. When the thought crossed his mind, I used to think I knew of it, and that the qualm appeared in his face visibly. Yet he would never flinch, necessity stalking at his back, famine his old pursuer talking in his ear. And I used to wonder whether I most admired or most despised this quivering heroism for evil. The image that occurred to me after his visit was just. I had been butted by a lamb, and the phase of life that I was now studying might be called the revolt of a sheep. End of chapter 19 Part 1